Well, good morning. Uh, this is an unexpected surprise to be here this morning. Uh, I'm just as surprised as you are that I'm here. So uh, I'm, I'm the substitute teacher that you used to make fun of and, uh, and uh, play pranks on. I called Denver out of the blue on Friday, I think it's Friday afternoon. I said, hey, how you doing, brother? He said, I'm in bed. I said, why are you in bed? And uh, he said, well, I slipped a disc in my back. And I said, ouch. And uh, I said, well, uh, what are you going to do Sunday? And he said, well, I'm going to have to preach. He said, I don't want to put my other elders on the horns of a dilemma on such short notice. And I said, well, I happen to have a free Sunday. So he said, would you? Could you? And uh, so that's why I'm here this morning. So I know we were here in November. And uh, so in God's providence, we're, I'm back this morning. My wife sends her apologies. She's not feeling well herself this morning. And so I came solo. Uh, but so good to see you and uh, so wonderful to see the place so packed. And uh, before the service, well, Shanton was waxing eloquent and using words that I don't even know. Um, I uh, decided to take some pictures of all the cars in the parking lot. And you say, well, why would you take pictures of the cars in the parking lot? Because I remember the day when there might be three or four cars in the parking lot. That's why I would take pictures. And I couldn't even fit them all in the frame this morning. So uh, that's a wonderful problem to have. And what a joy it is to see what God is doing here in your midst and how he's using uh, your pastor and the elders and others uh, to build his church in this part of town. So uh, we continue to pray for you and are continually blessed by what we see happening here. And we look forward to how God is going to continue to use you here in the southern suburbs. So be warmed and filled with that. Uh, sometimes when you're in a situation, you don't see how the Lord is actually working. But when you've been there from the beginning and then you come in from the outside and you see what's happening, uh, it is truly a blessing. So may the Lord bless and keep you all and may he uh, keep you faithful and use you this year and provide just the right venue for you. I'm still praying that uh, that church down the street uh, all of a sudden decides, well, we need to sell our property. Uh, so don't tell them that. So you can, you can edit that out. But uh, God, God does work in mysterious ways. So you never know what he's going to do or how he's going to provide next. Well, I'm here this morning to preach God's word. And it just so happens I have a brand new sermon that I only preached last week for the first time. And it was to encourage our folks at Everglen Baptist. And uh, so I thought I'd share it with you this morning, since it's still early in the new year, uh, give you a bit of encouragement as we begin the new year. And it's found in the book of Psalms. So if you would be so kind as to take your copy of God's word and turn to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. This is not a Psalm of David. Rather, it is a Psalm of Asaph who was a contemporary of King David, and he was used of God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to pen 12 of the 150 Psalms that make up part and parcel of our Bible. And so if you would turn to Psalm 77, I will begin reading at the inscription. Um, if you don't read the inscription at the Master Seminary, 
when you're preaching, they mark points off for that. So we will read the inscription. And uh, it begins, For the choir director, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. Beginning in verse 1. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Selah. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. Then I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to, uh, come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Selah. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. The waters you saw, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, it is our high and holy privilege to come before you, to commit this portion of your word to the time that we have to open it up, to examine it, to reflect upon it, and to seek to apply it to our lives. As we have just begun another new year, I pray that you would take the truths and the principles from this portion of the Psalms, and that you would use them in our own hearts and our own lives as we encounter the challenges that lie before us. And so, Father, we commit this time to you and ask that you would use it to bless us, your servants, and to glorify your name. And, Lord, we would pray all of this 
in the matchless name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it is hard to believe that another year has flown by so quickly and that we're already well into a brand new year. And if you're like me, 2022 was a mixture. It was a mixture of both highs and lows, all of which is certainly in keeping with the ebb and flow of life. And the fact that we live in fallen frames on a cursed earth. Some of you lost loved ones. Others suffered medical maladies. You lost a job or some other calamity may have befallen you. Maybe all of the above. We have all faced a national calamity. We all face new international challenges as a one world system extends its reach. There are any numbers of highlights that might stand out in your own lives, but sometimes the highlights can be lost amongst the tragedies, the challenges, and the difficulties that tend to diminish all that is good. And like a broken record, playing the same old sad song over and over again, we get stuck. We cry out and lament. Why me? Why does this always happen to me? Now, as we have just begun 2023, what does the year hold for us? What does it hold for you as an individual? What does it hold for you as Living Hope Bible Church? What does it hold for us as a nation, even as a world? None of us know. But hopefully, those of you sitting here this morning know the one who does know. One thing I know for sure, evil men will continue to wax worse and worse. And we can expect the world situation to continue its deterioration. And there will be those who will seek to take more of our freedoms more of our liberties, and curb them as Big Brother seeks to extend his reach. And closer to home, South Africa's current demise will probably only accelerate. After all, you can't have a growing, thriving, vibrant economy without an abundance of reliable energy. And I have some bad news for you. Renewable energy is not reliable energy. You need a solid baseload of energy to back all, of, uh, all those solar panels and all of those wind turbines up. And after all, the same people who destroyed the current energy grid, do you really think they're going to do any better with new sources of alternative energy? Probably not. So what is our response? How do we handle the challenges and the hardships of life? Do we give up? Do we retreat? Do we medicate ourselves as so many do? Do we seek to take the path of least resistance? Do we give up on God because it seems as though God has given up on us? 
Do we stick our heads in the proverbial sand? What do we do? This is what Psalm 77 addresses. The psalmist Asaph recorded his own lament to God as he surveys what appears to be a national crisis taking place in the nation of Israel. And in the first half of the psalm, Asaph cries out in distress to God in prayer and expresses his own doubts, his own misgivings with the status quo, as if to say, God, why don't you intervene? Why don't you do something? And why don't you do it now? And so he cries out. But then in the second half of the psalm, there's a shift. There's a transition that takes place. And we find the psalmist moving from a self-imposed pity party of sorts to a changed mood. His focus shifts. His sentiment expressed is completely different. He has a change in perspective. He's moving from turmoil to triumph, from vexation to victory. What's the catalyst for that? What gives rise to a change of heart, a change of mood? Why is his outlook being altered in such a dramatic fashion? Well, by examining Psalm 77, we get some better insights into how to deal with the disappointments of life from a more biblical perspective. And I hope that we will all learn that to serve the Lord, no matter what takes place in our life, no matter what happens to you in 2023, I pray that you will be able to face it as Asaph did during the second half of the psalm that bears his name. So this morning, we're going to look at the two perspectives for the troubled soul as explained by Asaph with the intention of applying it to our own lives in the here and now. So it's very simple. The psalm breaks down into two very distinct halves. In verses 1 through 9, you have the internal perspective. This is the introspective, inward look and fixation that Asaph has. And then in the second part of the psalm, from verse 10 all the way through verse 20, we have the external perspective. That's what you would call the uh, extrospective perspective, looking upward. So let's look at the internal perspective and then the external in just a moment. So in the internal perspective, as we look at the first nine verses, we see the psalmist taking a deep dive introspectively, focusing on his own disappointments and and the things that aren't going right. And he has an expectation of God that God will somehow dramatically, directly intervene and turn everything around in a moment's notice. After all, 
God's done it before. He can do it now. And what we see in these nine verses is a man who is lamenting the fact that he has been abandoned to suffering and to sorrow. Yet he doesn't give up, does he? Because he is praying. He is seeking the face of God in all of this as he should. And so Asaph is here expressing his own mind with all of the doubts and all of the dismay that these verses evidence. And the nature of the grammar here is such that it conveys a real sense of vividness, a sense of emotion. We sense some drama in the psalmist's own heart. After all, he's human, just like you, just like me. He's not a superhero. He has, he's subject to all of the ravages of a fallen frame and world just like we are. And so he's lamenting, and his own doubts surface verbally and audibly before the Lord here. But he doesn't stay there. And that's the key. So the internal perspective is evidenced in his prayer to God in these first nine verses in three ways. First, in verses one through three, we see the prayer of the overwhelmed. The prayer of the overwhelmed. He says, my voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. And the day of my trouble I sought the Lord, and the night my hand was outstretched without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Selah. And the selah there is just a pause, to take a moment to to catch your breath. But in these three verses, as part of his internal perspective, we see a man who is overwhelmed with everything that is going on. So so this overwhelmed prayer has some different facets to it. One is that it's heard. It's audible. Verse 1. He's crying out. This is an audible prayer. He is not crying out to God in the stillness of his own soul, in the silence thereof. He's quite overcome. He has doubt and emotion. And it says here in verse 1 that he cries. It's a very strong and emphatic verb there. And this is not some dispassionate plea. It is earmarked with desperation because this man has been in a prolonged, protracted crisis and he wants relief from it. This has continued unabated without seeing any resolution. He's saying, where are you? You're the God of Israel. You're the covenant-keeping God. Why don't you step into this situation and make yourself known? All of this and so much more is included in his prayer to God. There is a definite intensity in this prayer as he's verbally crying out to God. So this is the prayer of the overwhelmed. And it's a prayer that is heard and heard by God. 
It is also a prayer that is characterized by restlessness in verse 2. Because he says, in the day of trouble I sought the Lord. And in the night my hand was outstretched without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. You can see this man. He's, he's wide awake in the middle of the night. He's tossing, he's turning, he's crying out to God. There's a persistence in this prayer that prays even into the night hours. Why? Because to date, the prayer has not been answered. And so the psalmist doesn't give up, even though he's restless. We see him here in verse 2, taking the night watch. And he has an outstretched hand or arm. And even though his hands are outstretched to God, when he's done praying, he still comes up empty-handed, and so he groans to the Lord. In verse 3, this prayer of the overwhelmed is also uh, characterized by divine remembrance. Because he says, and then when I'm in the middle of the night and I'm tossing and I'm turning and I'm crying out to you, I remember God and then I'm disturbed. Why is he disturbed? He is disturbed because he is recollecting everything that God has done in the past in Israel. All of the wonderful works and miracles are popping into his head and his mind. And he's turning them over. He knows that God has intervened time and time again in the life of Israel. And he sighs and he moans audibly and physically grows weak. Because God is not intervening in the same fashion now. The stresses of life have a profound material effect upon the human body and the human spirit. And we see that in the life of the psalmist here, Asaph. What he's saying is God does not seem to be working in his life or the life of the nation. So now all he can do is cry out in the middle of the night and he receives no answer. His prayers are met with silence. His prayers are met with a distance between him and God. And his outstretched hands come up empty. C.H. Spurgeon was well acquainted with sorrow and suffering. For much of Spurgeon's life, He lived with medical maladies like neuralgia, gout, migraine, or migraine as you call them, headaches. And on more than one occasion, he had to go to the south of France during the UK winters to escape the cold that exacerbated all of his medical maladies. And to add insult to injury, near the end of his life, he went through a very taxing downgrade situation when the Baptist Union questioned both his theological and his pastoral competency. This is what Spurgeon said. Some of us know what it is, both physically and spiritually, to be compelled to use these words. No respite has been afforded us by the silence of the night. 
Our bed has been a rack to us. Our body has been in torment and our spirit in anguish. Alas, my God, the writer of this exposition well knows what thy servant Asaph meant, for his soul is familiar with the way of grief. Deep glens and lonely caves of soul depressions. My spirit knows full well your awful glooms. And so Asaph cries out to God in prayer as he is overwhelmed by what is going on and about his answerless prayers. But further, this prayer that he prays as a prayer of introspection, as a prayer of inquiry. Verses 4 through 6 show us this inquiry. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Again, verse 4. This prayer of inquiry is the prayer of sleepless nights. God, you have pried my eyelids open. I can't close them. I can't sleep. I'm an insomniac. As one who suffers from occasional insomnia, I can attest to its pernicious effects. It tends to make one feel like a zombie. People will say, you look tired. My response, I am. I'm wiped out. Why don't you take a nap? Because I can't. I can identify with that. The psalmist can't even speak here. He says in verse 4, I am so troubled that I cannot, emphatically, I cannot speak now. I've come to the end of my tether. There's a, he's adamant in all of this. But further, this prayer of inquiry evidences retrospection. Because in verses 5 and 6, he says, I consider the days of old. Verse, verse 6, I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart. And you can see him going back and he's rehearsing all these things that have happened in the past. So since he can't sleep, he resigns himself to searching out and recounting the history of God's marvelous dealings with his covenant people Israel. At the end of the day, that is a far better bet than counting sheep or ceiling tiles. It is good to recount the past ways in which God has dealt with us. And to remember that salvation is dramatic at that moment. That God changed us through his transforming power. And then to recount the ways that God has providentially intervened in our lives at points along the way. Of course, we have the scriptures as well, and we can recount from Genesis to Revelation all that God has done and will yet someday do. 
It's reminiscent of the old hymn. I don't think many people sing it anymore, but I remember it singing in the early days when I came to Christ. Count your many blessings. Count your blessings. Name them one by one, and it will amaze you to see what God has done. And so the psalmist begins down that road, down the avenue of recollection. And in his grief, he catalogs the ways in which God has miraculously worked in the life of the nation Israel. It becomes quite the mental and the spiritual exercise. And in his reflections on the past, he deliberates within himself as to why God doesn't do the same right now. In Asaph's mind, there is a disconnect and a contrast. Not only can we recount what God has done, but guess what? There is a lot that remains undone. There is a lot in God's prophetic calendar. So not only can we look back and consider that, meditate on that, ponder that, rehearse that in our minds and in our hearts, but we can look forward to what the Lord is yet to do. And as you read tomorrow's headlines, tomorrow morning, and you groan within yourself, and you say, what a wicked world we live in, understand that judgment day is coming. Judgment for the world, graduation for the believer in Christ. It's not over till it's over. And it's not over yet. And so the psalmist recounts all that God has done in the past and he is reminded of God's amazing track record. And so this is a prayer of the overwhelmed. It is a prayer of inquiry and it is a prayer of lament. Verses 7 through 9. This is all under the banner of his introspection here. Beginning in verse 7, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has his anger withdrawn his compassion? Selah. He's questioning God here. And you thought you were the only one. I've got good news. David did it too. And we have those lament psalms that record it for us. We're not alone in this. There are those moments where we begin to question God. Why don't you do something? Why is this happening? And so there are six rhetorical questions in rapid fire succession here. And these rhetorical questions should be viewed with and elicit a negative answer. No! These questions go right to the heart of God's nature and God's character and God's attributes. The temptation here, when you're lamenting and when the chips are down and you're going through, through the gristmill, the tendency is to begin to view God from the vantage point of your own personal experience. That's not the way to go. 
That is not the way to go. In fact, if you've ever read some of the deconversion stories of these evangelicals that are fleeing from the faith and recounting their deconversion stories, do you know what the common denominator is in all of those? They were viewing God from the vantage point of their own personal experience and he didn't meet their expectations. Uh Uh-uh. This is our grid, the word of God. This is where we flee. This is where we learn about God and we bring and we strain our experiences through the grid of scripture, not the other way around, or you'll come up short every time. And begin to lose heart. And so there are these questions that are asked. And he's saying, I know what God has done for his people in the past. So why isn't he doing anything yet? Hold tight. Because he will. There's an old saying I like. God seldom works swiftly, but he always works decisively. And that will happen. And I think that's what will happen with your building situation. He hasn't worked swiftly from our vantage point, but that day of decision will come, and when it comes, it will come like a whirlwind. What a day that will be. So in verse 7... Essentially, in those two questions, what Asaph is saying is, has God cast me off? Has God written me off? Will will he spurn us now forever? You see, since it appears that God is no longer showing them favor, perhaps he is spurning them forever, according to verse 7. It's very easy to do that today. It's very easy to look at the landscape and the horizon of the world around us and see all of the lunacy. And folks, there is some crazy, crazy stuff going on. Let's face it, when you self-identify as a bird and somebody else self-identifies as a bird dog, you're in trouble. As the Spanish would say, you're... You're muy la cabeza. You're nuts. In fact, when I taught English as a second language to Hispanics, that's what they used to tell me all the time. Maestro, you're muy la cabeza. You're one nutty guy. But take stock, my friends. Because as you go out and face the world tomorrow, and some of you go back to work, And you got to face all the nonsense at work, all the social engineering garbage that's coming down the pike. Remember Psalm 2. Psalm 2. The Lord will come, and he will come as the lion, not as the lamb, and he will come with the rod of iron. That day's coming. And so you better warn the loons and those who have gone off the deep end Judgment day is coming. You have today to repent. There's Psalm 94. There's a whole book of Revelation. 
There's a book of Daniel. And you could go on and on and on. The last chapter of history has not been written yet except from God's vantage point. So has God written them off? Nope. Verse 8. Has God's love grown cold? His loving kindness, has it ceased forever? The answer, no. Yet. Nigh. Not going to happen. Verse 9, has God's grace diminished? Absolutely not. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? These are two of God's attributes. Has God stopped being God, in other words? No. These are aspects of God's character that are an essential part of his nature. So how can you say God has forgotten to exercise grace? God has forgotten to exercise compassion on behalf of his covenant people? We must always remember that even in times of wrath, in times of judgment, that that wrath is laced with God's mercy. The resounding answer to all of these questions is simple. God is immutable. He does not change. He is the unchanging, immutable God. And so he concludes his lament, his lament of introspection, looking inward on that note. And then we get down to verse 10, and there's a transition. We're moving from the introspection or the internal perspective to the external perspective. And that external perspective is not just looking around horizontally, but rather it is looking upward. There's this change of focus. And verse 10 begins this. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. So here is the hinge. This is the linchpin. In his grief, he's crying out to Lord, to the Lord. He's rehearsing, he's rehashing all of these wonderful deeds that God has done in Israel's past. And now God is turning his own heart. He's beginning to focus more, not on what God hasn't done, but on God himself, the Most High God. And so, in verses 10 through 12 here, in this external perspective, there is a change in focus that is taking place. In verse 10, he's simply saying, I'm remembering God in my sorrow. He was on the verge of mischaracterizing God. In verses 1 through 9, God's character, God's nature got a little bit murky, a little bit blurry. But now all of a sudden, because of what he's been dwelling on and meditating upon and considering, he is awakened. He is reminded of the robust character of God, the inscrutable character, the incomparable nature of the Most High. 
And this awakens him from his emotionally induced stupor and he amends his focus and his perception. So that as he changes his focus here, we see in verses 11 and 12, he's meditating on God's deeds of deliverance. There he says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember the wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. This is his New Year's resolution. This is his resolve to remember the Lord's extraordinary feats of salvation and deliverance and the life of the nation of Israel. Rather than majoring on his feeling of grief and despair, the pity party is now over. And so now he is recalling how God has worked in times past, which serves to change his perception. And so he moves from distress to deliverance, from worry to worship, from petition to praise. In verses 11 and 12, there are three different Hebrew verbs for meditation that are used here. To double down and to emphasize the catalyst that brought about this change of focus, this change of heart. It is a meditation that this meditation that builds the bridge from fear as to what God has not done to faith. In fact, when you turn back in the Psalter and you turn back to the cornerstone of the book of Psalms and you look at Psalm 1, which really sets the trajectory along with Psalm 2 for the rest of the Psalms. And verse 2, when he's talking about the, the, the righteous man, the blessed man, it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He rehearses, he rehashes. And that word is used many times throughout the Psalms. You see, meditation... Biblical style involves filling your mind with God's truth. Assimilating that truth as you mentally process it and that begins to give rise to a changed outlook and attitude that prompts fresh and renewed actions. Years ago, back in the day as they say, when I used to run competitively in university, I can remember some exceptionally hard workouts. Workouts that would take me to the threshold and to the very edges of pain that I'd never experienced before. I can remember those occasions when it felt like I'd been to Davy Jones' locker. Meaning death. Living in the pain cave. But when you successfully completed those very hard workouts, when I would find myself in a race scenario, racing other men at a very high level, I can remember going into that pain cave and feeling like walking off the course. 
but remembering and looking back upon those very difficult workouts and saying to myself, you did it then, you can do it now. And drawing strength from that. That's what happens when you meditate on the word of God. And you relive it, and you rehash it, and you think you're about to give up, and then all of a sudden, in a moment of time, your attitude changes. And you say, you know what? God worked in. He can work now. And if he's not going to change the situation, then he's going to give me the grace I need to go through the fiery trial. And so he does. So in times of suffering, the faithful of God renew their confidence by meditating on the incomparable person and redemptive works of the covenant-keeping God. So in his external perspective, he has a change of focus. Further, as part of that external perspective, there is an emphasis on the glorious God. Notice verses 13 and 15. Through 15, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. Here is an emphasis, an underscoring of the incomparable God, his nature, his character. And in verse 13, he is reminded and reminding that God's way is holy. And the holiness of God is truly a rich and deep concept related to God's transcendence. In other words, that he is wholly other than what we are. And that he lives outside the time, space, matter, continuum, while somehow being in it simultaneously. And his holiness is part of who he is. It embraces moral and ethical qualities. It is a reference to who he is, and because of who he is, he does what he does. And whatever God does is upright and righteous. And so in the latter part of verse 13, he basically says, none of the gods of the pagan mind can compare. Well, pagans love to make their fashion designer gods. Such a god does not even really exist and lacks the essential qualities that serve to deliver one from the pestiferous bogs of despair. So his way is holy. Verse 14, as part of the glorious, incomparable God, his might and power are marvelous. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. The Lord continually acted in marvelous and miraculous ways at various points in Israel's history displaying his power on the worldwide stage so the Egyptians could see it, so the Assyrians could see it, so the Babylonians could see it, 
and so forth. None of the pagan gods can compare or begin to rival the God of Scripture. And then further, as part of this glorious God, verse 15, we see see His redemption, which is dramatic. Because He says there, you have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. God's greatness and power is not just theoretical. It's not just potential, but it is actual. It is concrete. And he is taking them back to Exodus 14, Exodus 15, when God delivered them from the clutches of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He reached down and he plucked up Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh and delivered his people. And the word for redemption here, or your redeemed people, is the Hebrew word goel, used of the kinsman redeemer, which speaks of the kinsman who secures the freedom of a relative, often by way of payment. It is the language of Ruth. It is the language of Boaz. It is the language that gives rise to King David and the Davidic covenant and the promise of that king of Israel that is eternal. So his redemption is dramatic. Furthermore, this look of extrospection, this look of Uh, externality is a comforting reflection. A comforting reflection. Verses 16 and following. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. He's here referencing the Exodus. And he includes some details that are not included elsewhere in Scripture. But we see him beginning in verse 16 as he personifies nature in relationship to the Exodus narrative. And the natural world recognizes and responds to God's power and his authority. And the point here is very simple. If God can control the waters with all of their travail, all of their tear, with all of the whirlwind, the flashes of lightning, and the thunderbolts, then he can certainly keep his covenant people. And in verse 19, we see that in all of this, as he leads his people out of Egypt through the parted waters of the Red Sea, God's presence is still a mystery because his footprints are not seen. They are not known. 
He led his people through the sea, but his physical presence was not visibly known. He led them like a flock. He used his servants, Moses and Aaron. And yes, there was the the pillar of fire. And finally, we see that God shepherds them. Verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. That's how God did it. He used human agency. He used his own servants. And that's how God often works. There's a portion out of the prophetical book of Habakkuk that actually parallels Psalm 77, and maybe that Habakkuk was referencing this as the Lord led him through his spirit to pin these words. But there in the midst of Habakkuk 3, he says, you, you trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. I heard my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on the high places for the choir director on my stringed instruments. Sounds like somebody was reading Psalm 77. What do we learn from all of this? Well, there's much we can learn. Let me just give you a few quick lessons as we conclude. Number one, we should learn this from Psalm 77. Do not long linger on self, but rather on the greatness of God. Go back this afternoon sometime and read Psalm 77. Take note in those first six verses how many times the psalmist uses the first person singular and the first person possessive. Me, myself, and I. Me, myself, and I. It sounds like a broken record. Twenty times in the first six verses. And in those same first six verses, he only references God in the third person six times. You see, his focus is more on himself than it is on God, even though he's praying. Reminds me of some of the political speeches I've heard over the years where a politician will talk about himself and reference himself a hundred times inside of one speech. But in the second half of the psalm, Asaph only references himself five times. 
while detailing God's person some 22 times and using the second person direct address, as well as titles for God's name. So do not long linger on self, but rather on the greatness of God. Secondly, as someone well said, in the end, the problem is not solved, but rather dissolves in the light of a more profound experience with God. The dilemma is not solved in Psalm 77. So what changed? Asaph's perspective changed. So while God may not solve the problem to our liking when at the moment in time we think it should be solved, he will grant us a godly perspective that enables us to work through the situation with a new sense of purpose. Thirdly, there is mercy even in the midst of wrath. The old exegete Franz Delich said this, The prophet begins with the prayer to revive that deed of redemption of the Mosaic days of old. In the midst of wrath to remember mercy. And in figures which are borrowed from our psalm, he then beholds a fresh deed of redemption by which that of old is eclipsed. There's mercy even in the midst of wrath. And fourthly, we will go through some level, some degree of suffering and anguish and grief this year, whether on a personal level, a national level, or international scale. The suffering will vary for all of us of various intensities and lengths. But like the psalmist, we may have the profound sense of abandonment by God because he isn't doing what he thinks he should be doing when he should be doing it. At this point, we need to move past this and remember God's incomparable greatness to overshadow our trials, our tribulations, and our troubles. Fifthly, meditate on the nature and character of God revealed in the great acts of deliverance of the past. This will be a catalyst that will change your lament into praise and your doubt into comfort. So that whatever happens to you, you know that God's love and God's power has not come to an abrupt end and that deliverance is assured even if it's glorification. So feast on his word in 2023. And then know this, he is the great shepherd who will always shepherd his people. He is the good shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He is the great shepherd. And he will not leave us to our own devices. Again, it reminds me of the old hymn, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender love and care. And finally this, he will do what he does in his time not ours.
Let me close with these words from an old Maranatha course. In his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Lord, please show me every day as you're teaching me your way that you do just what you say in your time. In your time, in your time, you make all things beautiful in your time. Lord, my life to you I bring. May each song I have to sing be to you a lovely thing in your time. Lord, please show me every day as you're teaching me your way that you do just what you say in your time. May that be your prayer, not only for 2023, but in the days that will go beyond that. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the encouragement from Psalm 77. We thank you for the honesty and the transparency of this soul of old Asaph, who spoke plainly and bluntly and poured out his heart to you, including his doubts and his reservations. And yet you heard his plea. And you changed his heart. Father, we live in very dangerous, uncertain, and wicked times. We see the darkness growing. And yet you've called us and placed us for such a time as this. May we be the light that we should be, and may we be the retardant that we should be to sin. May we be used of you in these dark and dangerous days. But Father, we we need the resolve of the psalmist. It is so easy to lament on what has not happened. But Father, help us to focus and meditate, consider and ponder what you have done what you are doing, and ultimately what you will do when your son someday returns in all of his glory. Encourage us with the words of Scripture. Change our hearts and give us the patience we need and the humility to understand that you will work all things out for our good and your glory, but that you will do so in your time and your time alone. Now, Father, help us to leave this place this morning with a renewed sense of purpose, with a proper biblical focus as we look upon the incomparable God that we serve, a God of great deliverance, eternal deliverance. And Father, if there would be one here this morning who knows not Christ, may today's sun not set until that takes place. And so, Father, we commit this to you. And thank you now for having met together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you have been glorified and that you will bless each one at that given point of need. And we pray it all in Christ's name alone. Amen.